Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. I hope that you understand that we love you and are thankful you're here. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, we're praying that our love for God would be expressed in love for others as we stand for what God is actually calling all people to, but in a posture of kindness and love. So, Spirit, we want you to give us that love, that posture. That we would not just be arrogant and proud that we're right or get defensive and begin to attack. Or to put all of our hope that America will regain its old traditional values. But that we would put our hope and that the new world is here and it's coming. And we want all people to be a part of that. And we'll give you praise for what you'll do in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to say this. In a couple weeks, we're going to have like a panel series discussion. And if you have questions you'd like us to address, um, if we get 100 questions, we're not going to be able to do that. Does that make sense? Um, But we'd love for questions that you have that we have not talked about, that you have issues about or want us to hear a particular specific topic on that. I'd love for you to talk with Nate and I, and we'd love to try to combine that into our um, panel discussion here in a couple weeks, or just have a time to meet and connect with you on some of these issues. All right, this morning, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to do that this way. There are actually four contemporary views among Christians in America on homosexuality. I know this is a chart with lots of information, but we're going to unpack it slowly together. We, we call these four sides of homosexuality. If you're up on the homosexuality discussion within the Christian church, we have what we called side A and side B. These were the original two sides, but in the last 10 years or so, we've incorporated two more sides, side X and side Y. You will see that, I think it's blue, that the top left, side A, is different in color because it is different than all the other three, okay? And so it is on its own. And so what I really want to do this morning is just take this chart, explain it to you, and then tell you the differences between side A and B, and then share with you some differences and some ideas that come out of uh, sides B, X, and Y. So side A, we call side A, A because we call this the affirming view. The affirming view is that homosexuality is compatible with Orthodox Christianity. There is a great growing crowd of evangelical Christians and Christians in America who would be open and affirming of homosexuality as long as it is in a monogamous, married context. So I was up in Vermont and New Hampshire uh, about eight months ago, and every, well, it's interesting, here you drive and there's church building every, what, six feet? Well, 
up there there's only one every 60, 100, you know, every 100 miles, okay, it's very weird, and when you drive by it, it's interesting, almost 90% of the churches I drove by, church buildings up in New England, have a pride flag on the front. It is very prominent in America right now to actually be open and affirming and that what Paul is actually condemning and what the Bible actually condemns is not monogamous homosexual marriages, but he's actually condemning non-loving, non-married unions of homosexual behaviors. That is side A. That's open and affirming. There is another side that countered that. A couple years ago, this was the side that went against side A, and that was side B. And that they believe that homosexuality is not compatible with Orthodox Christianity. One might be orientated. One might have an orientation towards homosexual beliefs or feelings or attitudes. But that orientation in and of itself is not sinful. And Nate did a fantastic job last week of explaining how just the temptation itself is not sin. To be oriented towards that particular lifestyle is not sin, according to side B. What is sin is acting out on those inclinations. Now, you need to understand that within each of these four spectrums, there's a whole list of variety of beliefs. Does that make sense? Some on the very one side of side B is like two people could actually live together, be in a relationship together, and just not have sex. And that's fine. Other people would be like, no, you can't have romantic relationships and be in a partnership with someone even in that context. So side B has a large range of people, but what it does is it says that we believe that Scripture teaches that homosexual actions are contrary to a biblical gospel ethic. Then, out of side B came two more positions, side X. Side X is more like, think of it this way, why do they call it side X? It's because, this is going to be very mean, and you're going to see that I don't really hold this position very well, um, not very well at all, is that if you have homosexual feelings, then that must be cured. And so back in the 80s and 90s, the church did a lot of work to put people who had those feelings in therapy and that they could be fixed, that you have a problem that needs to be solved and you need to go to therapy. And so the idea is to get rid of all homosexual feelings, to get rid of all homosexual orientation. It is like to get rid of everything. Okay, and I'm like, well, we'll talk more about that later. Okay. But God can and does change sinful attractions. Those who have these inclinations must repent of those inclinations. And they need to be, the big word here is cured. Or side Y. Side Y is actually in opposition to side B. Side Y talks a lot about our identity. Side B would say it's okay to I identify as a homosexual. Side Y would say, you know what? You should not identify yourself as a homosexual. You should identify yourself as a child of God. Use some sort of biblical language to identify who you are so that when you walk up to someone, you shouldn't be like, hi, I'm Scott, I'm a homosexual. Okay? You should walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Scott, I'm a daughter, or no, I'm a son. <laughs> Transgender next week. I'm a son 
of the Most High God. Like, our identity should not be rooted in our orientation. It should be rooted in a belief in who God has actually made us. Okay? So, within the Christian sphere, these are the four main camps, the four main ideas that people believe about homosexuality. Open and affirming. No, we shouldn't side B. We believe that that is wrong, but we're still going to identify, and it's okay to be orientated that way. We're just not going to act out who we think we are. Side X says that you must actually repent of all of those inclinations. You must get cured and not have any of those feelings anymore. And side Y that focuses on your identity. Who are you? Okay, does that make sense? So ask yourself right now, where am I? Where would you put yourself in this spectrum? So number two this morning, I want to look at the differences between side A and side B. Side A and side B. What is the difference? How do people come to different positions? How do you be a Christian and land on side A? And how can you be a Christian and when people actually use the Bible to promote side A, how do you defend it? Well, the first thing I want to say about side A and side B and the difference is this, is was I born this way? It's true that our sexuality can feel very natural. In fact, many people write things like this, but here is one example of a Christian side B lesbian who says this, I dwelled on those thoughts about her being a a lesbian so much that they felt that that was a part of who she was. Thoughts of being a lesbian felt as real as my own name. Yet, we need to come to see that just because how you feel feel about something does not mean that's how you were actually made. In fact, one Christian author, uh, a pastor who actually has homosexual orientation, his name is Sam Albury, has written this. He says, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. So some people are like, God made me this way. And if God didn't want me to be this way, then he wouldn't have made me this way. And it's very mean if God made me this way but wants me to live a certain different lifestyle. How could a loving God make me this way but then call me to live something different? And Sam Albury, as a homosexual orientation person who is now married with kids, actually says this is not a reflection of how God has made you. It's a reflection of how sin has distorted who we are as humans. Moreover, it's not just a theological that you are not born this way, but it's also a scientific you are not born this way. If you want more on this, I just gave you a a picture here of the Scientific American uh, website. They have a journal that they make, and all these scientific studies are um, done there. There's a lot of sexuality studies done on Scientific American, and they have a study that says, Massive study finds no single genetic cause of same-sexual behavior. Okay, now, this was not done by... James Dobson and Focus on the Family, okay? This was done by secular scientists who are actually trying to determine 
if homosexuality has a genetic predetermination when you are actually born. And these scientists are saying there is no predetermination genetically being found for homosexual behavior. So were you born this way? Well, I want to say that by nature and by nurture, that sin distorts all of us. We're all predisposed to want things that are, have nothing to do with God, Romans 6. This is not just homosexuality. This is like stealing. This is like lying. This is like all the sins that are out there that we have predisposition towards. And then the nature, or sorry, the nurture, the, 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 the environment that we grow up in, the family that we have, the friends that we have, are all pushing down on us to make decisions about our sexuality, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Were you born this way? Genetically, no. Theologically, God didn't make you this way to give you a bad life. So, were you born this way? I'll let you answer that. Question number two I have for side A and side B is side A not only says they were born this way, but side A often says things like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Any of you afraid of being on the wrong side of history? This has been a very popular idea in the last 15 years, primarily dealing with the slavery issue and the church taking the wrong side on the slavery issue in, in the 1800s. And many are arguing the Christian church must change its sexual ethic or risk being left behind. The church must change its belief on homosexuality, and not just homosexuality, but all types of sexuality, or we're going to be left in the dust and being proven that we were wrong just like slavery. But... Is the church on the wrong side of history? And not only are we on the wrong side of history, but is it wrong for the church to fight for, you ever heard, traditional values? We need the traditional values. My kids probably didn't. You remember Leave it to Beaver? Okay, somehow that became the standard American family, right? That's traditional values. If we get back to Leave it to Beaver, America would be great. What I want to say is, are we on the wrong side of history? And who's actually standing up for traditional values? How did the church create? How did the church not get on the wrong side of history? Do you know that in the surrounding Roman society when Paul lived, wives had next to no status. Women had actually no, next to no value. Freeborn men, okay, not slave men, but freeborn Roman citizens... They married women to obtain legal rights and to obtain legal heirs. But it was accepted that men, free men, would actually seek sexual satisfaction with anybody they wanted to. There was no bounds to the man, a free man, having sex with anyone he wanted to, whether that be a slave, whether that be his girlfriend, whether that be a prostitute, whether that even be other men. So in the Roman society, men had all the rights, could do whatever they wanted, have sex with whoever they wanted. And can you imagine being a woman married to a man 
who is just having sex everywhere with anyone at any time he wants. Most of this infidelity took place in the form of sleeping with your own slaves. And why? Because as one ancient writer says, if there's a slave girl or a homegrown slave boy ready at hand who you could jump right away, why not? I like sex that is easy and obtainable. And historical records back in the first century show how the wives actually, uh, I'm going to use the word, hated this reality about their husbands, about men. A first century poet writing in Rome even chastises the wives for being jealous. There's like a man poet telling the wives to stop being jealous. And there's a reason that the Cupid, the god of love, is that a male or a female, by the way? It's a male. And do you know why it's a male? Because in the first century, there were, if you want more on this, I can give it to you, but I'm just going to give you the cliff notes for the sake of times. In the first century, women had such low value that it was a prominent idea that for men to have sex with other men is actually better because men are actually of higher value. So to have sex with other men means you are greater. Like this is the idea, this is the world, this is the reality in which the church actually lived. And we're like complaining about how bad it is. We're not even close to first century Corinth. We're getting there. But it's not the issue of, are we on the wrong side of history? Do you know why history in the Western civilization for the last 1,500 years is the way that it is? It's because the church took a stand and didn't have sex with whoever they wanted. They didn't just have sex with their slave girls. This is why Paul was always telling the husbands to love their wives, be faithful to their wives, treat your servants this way. Don't go have sex with them. And what this did is it created a culture where the church just began to gravitate more and more people to it. And it changed the culture. It created the traditional values. We're not on the wrong side of history. We made the history. And we're getting back to a point where we're going to have to actually take a stand like the early church did and say, we're not going to live that way. With the hope that men and women will come to Jesus and experience biblical freedom. So from the beginning, Christians have not defended traditional values. They actually stood against the traditional values. And it actually changed the world. Number three, not only was I born this way, I'm on the wrong side of history, but number three, the third question I want to ask is, what does the Bible really say about this issue? And this is where everything I've said so far, in one sense, neat, cool, okay. This is like the crux of the matter. The crux is, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? There's a lot that can be said about this, but I want to look at um, two, not two, well, yeah, two passages and unpack them. The first passage I want to look at is actually just a word, and it's on the next slide. Paul uses a word, and I'm going to say the Greek word for you. It's arsenokoitoi, okay, and I'm going to 
just translate that right now, homosexual activity. But the Greek word is arsenokoitoi. And on the screen there, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will inherit the kingdom of God. The second time Paul uses this word that is translated homosexuality is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We also know the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral. And then here he uses this Greek word again, for those practicing homosexuality. So the first thing I want to do this morning is talk about this word arsenokoitoi and how Paul uses it in these two passages. Because how side A takes this word is very important. Side A says that this word is used to denote abusive male-male relationships. They've been falsely translated as homosexual. And it's not just that Paul is condemning homosexual behavior. What he's condemning is the abusive, like pederasty, that's a big word for an older man having sex with a younger man, a boy. Like that's abusive, that's coercive. And that is what Paul is actually condemning. Not homosexual you know, unions of like people coming together and, and agreeing. What's the word you want? Uh, consensual, thank you. Consensual. But it's actually an older man taking advantage of a younger person. So this is how side A gets around 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 by changing the meaning of the word arsenokoitoi. Now why is it so hard to determine what the word arsenokoitoi means? I shouldn't say so hard. Why is there some ambiguity? Here's why. Paul made this word up. <laughs> okay? Um, it's not used before Paul. It's actually used after Paul. It's almost as if Paul created this word. And what I want to do is give you five reasons why, and I can give you 11 if you want the article. There's an article of 11 reasons. We should do a resource list too, by the way. Um, like, yeah, if you want more resources on this particular topic, I'll direct you to a 550-page, very technical work. Or... A blog post that summarizes it, okay? <laughs> However, here's five reasons why I think this word, arsenokoitoi, Paul is condemning homosexuality. And when I say absolutely, he's saying in any and every form. Not just in non-consensual, not just in male prostitution, not just in temple rituals, but in all forms why Paul condemns homosexuality. Number one is Paul creates the word clearly based on Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. So I went back in my own Hebrew and uh, began trying to figure all this out. But here's Leviticus 18, literally. It says, and as you can tell, it's very King James-ish because it's literally this way. With a male, do not lie down. As a woman, it is shameful. It is an abomination. 
Now, when Paul makes up a word, he uses the word arseno, which means male. And he uses a word called koitoi, which comes from a verb to lie down. And when it is used as a noun, it's called a bed. So the idea is man laying down on a bed. Where do you think Paul picked up this idea from? Leviticus 18 and chapter 20, where it says male lying down in a bed. In fact, the rabbis, 500 years before Paul and 500 years after Paul, used the phrase, not this particular word, but used the phrase of a male lying down with a male. It is throughout the rabbinic Jewish literature. So that what Paul is doing is when he's talking about male homosexuality, this is a distinctly Jewish and Christian word. It's a formulation made by Paul that directly comes from the Old Testament context. And what we're going to see in a few moments is that this word, arsenokoitoi, coming from the Old Testament law, squares actually with 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul is deriving his whole message from the law. And we'll come back to that number in a second. But first, I just want you to see that Paul creates this word very clearly, I believe, on Leviticus 18, which is very emphatic, that is absolute. In fact, Paul says in the verse before, don't offer your children to Molech. There's no uh, conditions on that. Well, you know, if, if it's okay with you and your wife and you want to give your child to Molech, you're okay. No, there's no conditions. It's an absolute statement. Number two, why do I think our Senecoitoi is absolute? Is the Jewish context. The Jewish context for at least 500 years before and after Paul recognized homosexual behavior as completely wrong. You ever wondered why Jesus never talks about homosexual behavior? Some people take the silence on that as like he didn't care about it. Could you think of a lot of things Jesus didn't talk about that he probably cares about? I mean, just think of the worst sins out there, and Jesus is not talking about them. There are things, lots of things Jesus talks about, but he doesn't talk about everything. Why doesn't Jesus talk about homosexual behavior? Because in the Jewish context, there was no debate. The Pharisees weren't coming to him with these questions. The Sadducees were not coming to him with these questions. The religious progressives and religious conservatives all had the same belief. So that here is one Jewish writing. The male who lays with a man, lays in Leviticus 18, may be an adult minor. And they actually say that this is absolutely prohibited throughout all of their literature. Josephus. I don't know if you ever heard of Josephus. He's one of the primary early uh, first century um, Jewish, he's not a Christian, Jewish historians. So he's not even a follower of Jesus, by the way. He says, the law of Moses recognizes only sexual intercourse that's according to nature, that is, with a woman. And it abhors the intercourse of males with males. This is a Jewish writer, writing primarily Jewish history for Roman generals, who is saying that, just absolutely in Jewish understanding, this was an abomination. So that one theologian makes this conclusion. 
the notion that first century Jews, such as Jesus and Paul, would have given general approval to homosexual lifestyle, like they would have been okay with it, if they had been shown adequate examples of mutually caring, non-exploitative, same-sex relationships. So basically, this theologian is saying the belief that if there were homosexual relationships that were non-exploitative, that were mutually caring, that Jesus and Paul would have accepted it, he says is absolutely fantastic. Okay, now don't say fantastic in the sense of like, yeah, it's awesome, but in the sense of fantasy. That is absolute fantasy to believe that Paul or Jesus would have given any sort of approval to it. More or different information about same-sex same intercourse would have not changed the verdict for any first-century Jew. Why? Because the anatomical, the sexual, and the procreative complementarity of male and female unions would have remained indisputable. So, what I'm helping you to see is that why I think Paul condemns it absolutely is because every Jewish person 500 years before him and 500 years after him condemns it absolutely. There is no Jewish writing that anyone's uncovered that's any different. Number three, why do I think it's absolute? Well, number three, because the choice of the word had a more limited meaning been intended. If Paul wanted to say exploitative, or if he wanted to say pederasty, which is like the, the older man with a younger boy, do you know what there's words for that? In fact, not only are there words for it, but there's this Christian writing in the first century called the Didache. It's called the teaching. And in this, it's not scripture. It was one of the last books pushed out without being canonized, without being part of the Bible. But in that Didache, there's words that actually say that you should not be a corrupter of boys. It is the, the, the last one down there, the Pythopithri. The idea that you should not be corrupting boys. So if Paul wanted to do something that was qualified, he definitely could have used other words. Number four, some I'm taking longer than others. Number four, that was quick. Number four, the implications of the context from 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. The absolute inclusive sense is confirmed by the broader context in which we find 1 Corinthians 5. I've read 1 Corinthians 6, that if you live this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you go back to chapter 5, you have the parallel case of a man sleeping with his father's wife. You have incest going on. And there are no exceptions for committed loving unions for incest. Paul didn't say, you know what? They're loving each other. It's okay. Let them continue to be in the church. The vice list that we just read through in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where sexual offenders, not just homosexual, but all sexual offenders, are distinguished from the idolaters, says that consent is presumed, and a warning is given to believers not to engage in any behavior any longer. Regardless of consent, that whole list of sexual sins does not talk about if there's consent or exploitation. Then in chapter 7, the issue of marriage. 
when Paul is going to talk about the, the role of marriage and what marriage should look like in the context of ministry, he's going back to Genesis chapter 2 and talks about male and female, a husband and a wife. What we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 is a whole range of sexual sins that are being, unfortunately, acted upon in the city of Corinth. And nowhere in any of those sins is Paul giving qualifications. No incest, no homosexuality, no adultery, nothing immoral. That is what Paul is saying. Then, number five, when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and if you, uh, Marty, can go back to the slide with 1 Timothy on it, um, it's back a few slides. But what you see in this vice list is kind of like a repeating of the Ten Commandments. Like when you look in this here and it says, those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, the slave traders and liars and perjurers. Okay, you're going to have to like, it doesn't take a lot of common sense to think through this. Uh, what does it talk about? Killing him, is killing your mother and father honoring them? Hopefully not. For murderers, do not kill, do not commit, do not murder. The sexually immoral, do not covet your neighbor's wife. For slave traders, do not steal. For liars, don't lie. For perjurers, don't covet. It's almost like Paul is reiterating the whole Ten Commandment list here. And in the midst of these commandments, going back to the law, he now includes this word again, arsenokoitoi. And when you look at what the Old Testament law says about homosexuality, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, there are no qualifications. It is an absolute reality. Now, I will say this. Back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, even open and affirming Christian theologians would say this, that this was a major thing, major way to articulate open and affirming homosexual relationships is to attack this word. But based on all of this research that's gone on the last 15 years, you will be hard-pressed to find an open, affirming theologian who actually tries to use arsenokoitoi as a means for homosexual relationships. There's been so much study and so much continuity between all of this that it's almost that the side A and side B theologians are agreeing with what I just told you. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Like, it's honestly true that they're coming to the point where, okay, if we're going to be honest with the Bible, this is what Paul is actually doing. Then, the second thing I want to deal with is not just our center koitoi, but the second passage I want to deal with is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 uh, says this. Because of this, I think I have this on the slide for you. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. This passage, 
to me is like, check. Like, it is hard to get around this one at all. How do open and affirming side A people get around Romans chapter 1? I'm not, I'm trying not to be like snarky or sarcastic, but this is how they say it. And if you want more information on this, I'll give it to you. But they say when it says they exchange natural sexual relations to unnatural ones, is that they were by nature homosexual and changed it to heterosexual. That's whatever your nature is, whatever your starting point is, if you change that, that is what is an error. Does that make sense what I'm saying? That's how they get around this passage. Okay, now, what should we take away from this passage? Three things. There's a million things. I'm going to give you three. Number one, when Paul says they exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, they did things that were contrary to nature. What is nature? At the time, in the first century, nature did not refer to the trees out there and the mountains and the hills and the campgrounds. Nature meant what it meant to be a human, what it meant to be as a human being, behavior that reflects the way humans were originally created, that fits the template for what it means to be created in the image of God. This is what Paul understood nature to be. And what he is actually arguing is that in Roman society, in that first century world, there were men who, and women who actually exchanged that natural order of man and woman coming together for sexual intercourse for man and man and woman and woman. So nature here, even according to like Aristotle and Plato and all those Greek philosophers, had to do with who you are as a human being. Number two, Paul directly speaks against the idea of coercion and pederasty as he states they were inflamed for one another. Okay, and I think that's important. For one another. This wasn't exploitative. It wasn't older to younger. It wasn't temple prostitution. It was this idea that they were coming together in unison, that they both wanted it. Number three. Paul also brings into this equation lesbians, women. He brings into this equation that it's not just man for man, but it's actually woman for woman. And that is the exchanging of the glory of God for themselves. And the last thing I want to say about this is, I don't have it on the screen for you, is that Paul says in the next verse, it's not just those who practice these things, but it's those who actually condone them. Like if we say, oh yeah, I don't live that way, but you can do it and I'm all for it. Paul says you are not living according to nature. You're not living for the glory of God. So what is the difference between side A and side B? I think the issue comes down to Scripture. I think Scripture very clearly articulates that this is an exchanging of what God has intended for something God did not intend. And it is living contrary to how God has actually made us. So that's the difference between side A and side B. I am going to just quickly do the differences between B, X, and Y. And 
I'm going to do it in this context. I'm going to ask three questions again that I think will help us distinguish between B, X, and Y. The first question I want to ask ourselves is this. Can I be cured from homosexual desires? Side X says you need to be. Side B and side Y say no, you don't need to be cured. The ideal is integration, church. The ideal for all of us is harmony between our body and our person, between our uh, psychological orientation and our physical orientation. This side of heaven, we should not expect perfection any more than we enjoy perfection in other er any other area of life. How many of you have done the campfire experience? I will never do that again. With every intention, like, you might be 100% in you, like, I don't ever want to do this again. And, and six minutes later, what are you doing? Feeling the weight and the guilt that you're not good enough, that you struggle with these. And the problem is that there's been a lot of therapy, a lot of teaching in the church that says if you try hard enough, you can overcome all of your same-sex attraction and become heterosexual. These programs have led to painful disappointment, great disillusionment, and unfortunately, has given the church a bad reputation. Rather than walking alongside, people are like, you got a problem, you need to fix it. Now, we do that nicely, of course, because... I mean, up north we don't, but down here you do. And it's like, well, okay, you, you know, you're still different. You're still out there. Not to mention this, the, the number of other sins that all of us struggle with, whether that be pornography, whether that be transgender orientations, or whatever the other struggles that we all have. We're like, that one needs to be cured, but mine's okay. We can live with a pornography person as long as he keeps fighting, but those people need to be fixed. And it's just an absolutely wrong understanding of the nature and the power of sin just to say if you have enough teaching, enough therapy, you can overcome it. As Francis Schaeffer has said in his book, True Spirituality, the process of becoming holy leads to substantial healing, not perfect healing, this side of heaven. If we demand all or nothing, we end up with nothing. The biblical worldview that Nate and I have been trying to communicate to you has the resources, a balanced explanation of why you and I struggle with the things we struggle with. It gives a reason for that. It provides a ground and rationale for our inclinations. And Scripture is absolutely realistic about the destructive impact of the power and, and the fall of the world of sin that we live in. The world has fallen. It's broken. And we all know that when we do something the wrong way, we often damage or break that thing, whether it's a dish, whether it's an arm, whether it's a relationship. When the first humans did something wrong, they damaged everything. They broke the world. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe it's any sexual sin. You've said to yourself, I have prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take this away, and he won't take it away. Have you been there? And Paul says, 
I asked three times for my thorn. Why does he use the word thorn? Going back to the curse in Genesis chapter 3, we don't know what the thorn was, but he was saying is it's part of this fallen, cursed world that he asked God to take away, and God's answer was what? No. If you're struggling with homosexual orientation this morning, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and God keeps saying no, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he didn't love Paul. And you also had a prayer request turned down? There's this man named Jesus who said, Father, take this cup from me. And the Father said what? No. Because Paul can say, God's grace is sufficient for me. No matter what I'm dealing with, God's grace is going to cover me. And Jesus can say, it is not my will, but it is your will. And how thankful are you that Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father for you? versus doing his own thing. And so how arrogant, how rebellious of any of us in any issue, not just in homosexual orientation, to look at God in angst and anger and say, you won't take this away. So, can you be cured? Yes, when you get to the new world. Until then, keep fighting. Keep fighting for grace. Number two, where should I place my identity? Where should I place my identity? Getting too excited. Question one distinguishes the difference between side X and side Y. This is asking the question between side B, the top right, and the bottom side Y. In one sense, I don't care where you land on this chart, okay? And this is my own opinion. If you have a different opinion on this, that's okay. Like, fine. But I think it's most helpful not to place our identity in our feelings, nor, I'm already crying because I know it's coming, nor the distortions of the created order. So don't put, our, don't put trust in our identity in what we feel or the distortions of this world, but place your identity in God's true story. We say this all the time, that your identity comes from what story you live out. And I think it's best to place that identity in the story that you want to live out. Because feelings, as important as they are, do not always give you a reliable guide to what is true. This past week has been a lot more feelings for me than normal. What I mean by that is I've expressed them a lot more than normal. I've paid attention to them. Some people think I have no feelings. I have just as many feelings as you. You just don't see them. And I'm not in touch with them as close as you are. And some of you need to stop being so close to your feelings. 
Like, the feeling is not too, it's, a, it's not whether you have them, it's not if you're too close or too far. And I dropped my daughter off. <laughs> this is so stupid. Just dropped her off at college. She's an hour and a half away. She's got good friends. I get to go to Richmond. I love Richmond. I've had fun doing all these things with her. And like, I, you know, I do have another daughter in college, and I love her too. But she stayed home. She's, she's good. My prodigal daughter has left. <laughs> That's just helped me deal with the sarcasm, helps me deal with the crying. She's not prodigal. And it was, you know, not just the simple, like, my first daughter leaving. It's not just, I'm going to miss her. I'm just going to the gym. But there's this deep feeling that Shelly should have been there. Like, she should be there. Alana should see her and know how proud she would be of her. And she's not there. And it just is, I mean, I cried for two hours on the way home. Like the son of how I drove. And the whole time, it's just like this feeling of anger. And like this bitterness that God would do that. And so, I, it just... It's so weird if you've experienced any pain or trauma because it just takes you right back. Like, time doesn't do anything. It's so annoying. It takes you right back where you're just like, all right, God, this is not happening. And you begin to look for other worldviews and other stories to make sense and to justify your feelings. Do you catch that? You, you have all this pain and all these feelings, and you've got to find something to make sense of it, and so you choose some alternative worldview. That's what happens. This is why I believe deeply that people who give into homosexual orientation in our side A is because they have these deep, deep feelings. They don't want to do them. They can only make sense of it by buying into a different story. And it's driven not by intellectual it's driven by your feelings and paul says do not be driven by your feelings be driven by what is true and eventually those feelings will come back to what is true but where's your identity if it's based on the story that we believe is true about the whole world, then I'm a broken sinner who God is redeeming and is going to come and dwell with me on a new world with all of us together. That's who I am. And I think that is a helpful way to begin to process the feelings that we have about our sexuality, about what we believe, that we don't just put our trust in some other story to make sense or to justify what we want or who we want to be. Then number three, my last question. Is this an agree-to-disagree issue? Can we just agree to disagree? All right, there's lots of I want to call secondary issues that are agreed to disagree. 
You want to be free will? Let's agree to disagree. You want to be an Arminian Calvinist? You want to debate that? You want to be a, I believe in supernatural gifts. I don't believe in supernatural gifts. I believe in women preachers. I don't believe in women preachers. I think those are like topics we agree to disagree on in the Christian world. But I don't think this issue is able to be an agree to disagree issue. Why? Because of how Paul talks about this issue. That if what I am actually saying is what Paul believes, this issue has too much seriousness to it. Like in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that the wrongdoers, and, and, and again, you got to catch this, will not. It's not might not. There's no conditions. It is an absolute statement will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. The immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the slanderers, the swindlers, don't be deceived. None of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. This is not an agree-to-disagree issue. This is like a kingdom or no kingdom issue. And not just the homosexuality piece. You like to steal, you're greedy, you're not in the kingdom just like the homosexual that you think you're better than. Like this can't just be like, you know what, we're all Christians, we all love Jesus. No, there's some things that actually you live contrary, even though you claim to love Jesus, you don't love the right Jesus. And Paul is very, this is just one passage. We can go to Revelation. We can go to lists of other places where Paul and the New Testament writers do not leave sexual sin as an agree-to-disagree issue. It is a kingdom issue. And as we live in this fallen world, in this already-not-yet state that we're in, we need to learn how to love people who are different than us. To take the offense that they give to us and to say, this is what we believe flourishing will be. And to actually create a community where that is embodied and enacted, where people come and say, that is what I want. So Jesus, help us to be that people. Help us to be people who love those that are different than us and be willing to take all the offense to be cheated because that's what you have done for us. And so I just pray for all of us in this room this morning that this time that we've been together this morning will direct our hearts to what is true, what the real story of the real world is, and that we want to live in that story because that's where joy and peace are found. So God, wherever we're at in our sexual brokenness, just give us peace today. That we're okay. 
because the blood of Jesus has washed us. As Paul says, that is what we were, but now we're not. So help us to embody these kingdom values as a people for the sake of Jesus and his church and his kingdom. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.